Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Oh, you're exactly right, Joe. We work for the man upstairs as you do. You're setting me up quite well. You just gave me an alley-oop. The greatest revolutionary act you can commit right now is to open your mouth and speak the truth. Whether you're an academic or you're a regular guy, we have to be fearless. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, as always, joined by Joe Resinello. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, serving the New York metropolitan area. Please be sure to download the Veritas Catholic Radio Network mobile app so that you can have access to all of our station's content. And also, if you would, please, wherever you see Joe and I on social media, Facebook, YouTube, uh, wherever, we're all over the place. Uh, Like, subscribe, share, hit the little bell, do all that fun stuff, do something to help us. I would say, uh, particularly we're focusing on our YouTube page, which is Frontline TV, the Frontline TV. So if you could go there and help us out, uh, we would greatly appreciate it. And today, we are very pleased and honored to be welcoming back to the show a friend of the show, which is going to be the theme of the show, which is friendship, uh, Mike Aquilina. And we're going to be discussing his new book, Friendship and the Fathers, How the Early Church Evangelized. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Mike, I want to give a brief introduction. Mike Aquilina is Executive Vice President of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology and a contributing editor for Angelus News. He is author of more than 50 books, including The Fathers of the Church and Villains of the Early Church. He hosts The Way of the Fathers podcast for catholicculture.org and edits the Reclaiming Catholic History series for Ave Maria Press. Uh, He and his wife, Terry, have been married since 1985. They are the parents of six children and numerous grandchildren. Mike Aquilino, welcome back to the front line with Joe and Joe, our friend. Hey, thanks for having me back. You guys never learn. Oh, I love it. I love it. Three Italians talking about friendship. I look forward to the conversation. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. right. Well, let's Jojo, start- I'm going to hand it over to you. We'll start with a prayer. We'll start with the prayer, as is our custom. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, never was it known that anyone who sought your help or sought your intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we find to you a virgin of virgins, our mother. To you we come, before you we stand, sinful and sorrowful. O mother, the word incarnate, despise not our petitions, but in your clemency, hear and answer us. Amen. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. So let's jump right into it, Mike. Um, In doing research for this interview, um, I read this about your new book. For the church fathers, friendship was at the heart of the gospel. It was the way to salvation and the most effective means of evangelization. God had taken flesh in order to befriend mankind. Jesus had called his apostles friends. Can you elaborate on that idea? I I, I like it to be truthful with you. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation because I believe friendship is the pathway to evangelization. Talk about that idea for us to start off. Well, nothing could seem more absurd in the pre-Christian world. You know, uh, Aristotle wrote about friendship. Cicero wrote about friendship. And when Aristotle... Uh, approach the issue, one of the things he pointed out is that equality is necessary in friendship. You know, if if two guys were going to be friends, they had to have the same social standing. They had to, you know, have the, the, the same amount of money in the bank. <laughs> you know, they had to they had to be equal in every way, and they had to have the same opinions in all important matters. You know, this is this is what Aristotle, uh, you know, says explicitly. And 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 in order to make his point, he says, for example, a god could never have friendship with a man. Right? This this inequality is so stark that it would it would make make it impossible. And for him, that seems self evident. You know, and maybe it should seem self-evident because inequalities do complicate friendships, right? But 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 God Himself overcame all that by taking flesh. And he did this in order to save us, to befriend us, to take us into his fellowship and have communion with us. This is a remarkable truth. And you know, we've been living with it for 2,000 years. We've be we've let it 
become a worn coin. And that's very sad. Uh, we shouldn't do that. Uh, but for the early Christians, it was something fresh. It was something new. It was good news. And, uh, and they, um, they, they, they ran with that. You know, that's the way they evangelized by telling the story that way. Uh, at the Last Supper, most solemn moment of our Lord's life, he said to his disciples, he said, he said um, I have called you friends. And this must have arrived as a shock. It must have arrived as something, something, uh, something surprising, something startling. Uh, he's, he didn't say, I've called you disciples, you know, in that, that uh, subordinate relationship that uh, a rabbi has to his followers. He didn't, and he said, I no longer call you servants, which is what we should be to God, but I have elevated you. I have called you friends. Again, this is the good news, and, and this yeah. is the way the way the Christians can. No, I, I want to touch on that because clearly yeah. we have warts and God doesn't, and he still called <laughs> us friends. You see, that's, that's the thing that I find to be uh, important to note with that. And I think in our own relationships, you talked about, you know, things being equal. That's never going to be the case. We're not going to see no. eye to eye on everything in life, but you could still be friends with people. And that's something I think that has been lost in our society right now. People have forgotten that idea. There, there was an idea, you hear it, you know, let's agree to disagree on that and move on. That's not the case anymore. And yeah. Christ had every reason to say, listen, you're you and I'm me. I'm perfect. I'm God, and you're not. So I'm not going to be your friend. But he didn't choose that. Could you talk about that a little bit? <laughs> well, so much of the Christian life is an imitation of Christ, but it's more than that. It's a participation in the life of Christ, right? Uh, it's this this holy communion that we enter at baptism. You know, at that moment, to use the words of uh, the Second Epistle of Peter, we have become partakers of the divine nature. Right? So we're not only imitating Christ, we're living in union with him. We're befriending with his power. We're befriending as he befriended. And, uh, and that's, that's something that, should, that should, uh, should animate us. It should inspire us, and it should drive us to be universal in our approach to friendship. Uh, you know, to get way out of my, my uh, usual period here, you know, there's a great saint of the last century, St. Jose Maria Escriva, and he had this, this saying, out of 100 people, we're interested in 100. Out of 100 people, we're interested in 100. And that's the way we should be. We should be interested in these people because they're all interesting if we allow ourselves to get to know them. Sometimes that takes time, but we should at least make the attempt at friendship because Jesus Christ himself has done that. You're listening to The Frontline with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo and Joe Racinello, being joined by Mike Aquilina discussing his book, new book, <clears throat> excuse me, Friendship and the Fathers, How the Early Church Evangelized. One of the things, when I was thinking about we were going to be uh, doing this interview, Mike, and, uh, and the title of your book, and I happened to stumble upon, and I think it's a great example. I happened to stumble upon, it was from a few years ago, a debate uh, with uh, Catholics and Protestants. Okay, and in the debate on on the Catholic side was uh, Scott Hahn, Father Benedict Rochelle, right, and and the, the the Protestants were on the other side, and I was struck by the fact that they had they 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 showed that friendship that you're talking about. In other words, that it doesn't have to be a slap down WWE. Let me throw you out of the ring, um, finger pointing. And again, nobody was backing off their points. Nobody was nobody was not making the points that they wanted to, both on the Protestant and Catholic side. They were very direct, all right, uh, and saying, "Okay, you're, you're in error on this, or you're in error on this." But you could see their friendship. That was that was what I noticed because we've all heard the arguments before between Protestants and Catholics, all right? But you could see the mutual respect and the friendship that they had, okay? And I, I dare say that that should have or should have had a major impact on a lot of a lot of the people that would have been watching that debate. What do you think about oh, that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My wife is a big fan of the apologist Arnold Lunn. Now, Lunn was writing a lot of his books in the first half of the last century. He was a convert to the faith. Uh, he wasn't a man of great emotion, but he was a man of, of great reason. And he would have these public debates, as you're describing, with uh, – with, with atheists and agnostics and materialists, uh, and he would do it uh, sometimes uh, in, a, in a public venue. Other times he would do it 
through letters. And what's amazing is that he published these debates, you know, uh, these back and forth dialogues, uh, and uh, and people bought the book. So my wife was reading from one of these uh, just a few days ago, and she said out loud, isn't it remarkable that there were these respectful public exchanges of opinion about, about these matters that, that, that two men held with such passion and passionate disagreement, and yet they remained respectful. And not only that, but they could publish these in book form, and there was a market for such respectful dialogue so that people can evaluate evidence on both sides and come to their own conclusion. This is remarkable. It is so antithetical to, to our age of social media, where everything is a battle of sound bites and memes, uh, and and you really can't get at the truth. Uh, what you're looking at is, you know, did I score a point? Did I did I have a better zinger than the other guy? But yeah, uh, uh, you know, this is uh, this is something that's been lost on our our current generation, and that's a sad thing. Joe, before we move on, I I do want to ask you about that, uh, Mike, if you don't mind. How would you? recommend to those out there, Catholics that are trying to evangelize primarily with the way we live our lives, where other mm -hmm. people see our example, the things that we do, the things that we don't do, and, and, and the whole nine yards. How do we go about, let's say, the work that we're supposed to be doing in the face of a more, see, this is not Let's say, for argument's sake, um, you know, Chesterton and Shaw or Copleston and, and Bertram Russell, okay? We're, we're not getting much friendship and respect coming from the other side. And I'm not trying to be a troublemaker, but what I am asking is, what would you recommend to people who are trying to be friends with other people and evangelize with their lives uh, in the face of this, how would you call it, aggression? Mm. What would your recommend, a recommendation be to those people? Well, I, I'd say uh, recalibrate. <laughs> you know, I think... Um, I, I, I think uh, we can find good examples in the early church because, because how, did, how did they evangelize? You know, how did that happen? If you look at the early history of Christianity, you discover something remarkable. The church grew at a steady rate of 40% per decade, 40% per decade for almost 300 years. And it accomplished this at a time when Christianity was not only illegal, but it was a capital crime. Mm -hmm. You could be executed for proselytizing. So how did this happen? There were, there were no mass media. So there was no you know, uh, radio network that you could go out on and, and reach, reach a lot of people all at once. You couldn't even write a book and reach a lot of people all at once because there was no printing press. So how did they do it? They did it with the only means they had at hand, and that was by establishing real friendship flesh and blood friendship by getting to know the people next door on either side and the people behind you that by getting to know the people who worked in the market stall next to yours, where you went to work every day, getting to know them, getting in, into their lives, knowing about their children, about their spouses and caring about them in a genuine way, not in a phony way. Like mm -hmm. I have my elevator pitch. I'm going to give to you about Jesus. And by the time we get down to the first floor, you know, you're going to be a Christian. No, it wasn't that at all. Mm. It was, it was friendship. And in some of these, um, these texts from the early fathers, we can see that at work. You know, I'm thinking especially of one text I have in the book, which is the Octavius by Minutius Felix. Now, nobody knows that book and nobody knows the author. But in my opinion, it's one of the most important documents from the early church, because all it does is show three friends taking a vacation together, having a holiday weekend together, going to, to a resort and to have a good time, and they fall into conversation about the most important things in life, because this is how life proceeds. This is how it goes forward. These aren't three theologians. These are three lawyers two of them Christian, one of them a pagan, and they have conversations. And that's how evangelization happened in those years. You know, you said something about Jose Escriva, who obviously uh, is the founder of Opus Dei, um, and it, it struck me. You said, we're interested in 100 people, not of out of 100 people. Now, obviously, you're not going to see eye to eye with all right. those people, but it's the love of God that makes you interested. You see, that's what binds the conversation. Like in my own walk with, with you know, my 
my faith as, as well as being in the world. It's the love of God. You're, we're supposed to love people, even if you don't like them, even if you disagree with them. And I want to talk about this because it's about taking a chance. We always say we follow the master who is Jesus. We are yes. disciples, which means follower. He took a chance. He talked to Nathaniel up in the tree. He went to the Samaritan woman at the well. He shouldn't have done that. In fact, his disciples said, why are you doing it? Why are you talking to that woman? Yeah. See, we have to take a chance sometimes, and sometimes you're surprised. Talk about that. Sometimes people surprise you. A fr friendship makes us vulnerable. We're laying ourselves on the line. Now, now for Jesus and for the early Christians, there was, there was serious risk involved, life and death kind of risk, you know, especially for those early Christians who knew that this was a capital crime, okay? If they revealed to someone that they were uh, a disciple of Christ, well, they could be denounced for that. They could be executed the next day for that. Um, so that didn't happen too often. But what you had to do was what you do in any relationship between friends. You established a bond of trust. And how do you do that? By being in their lives, by letting them get to know you, by your getting to know them, by being the person who offers them a ride when they need a ride, who makes them a meal when they've had a death in the family and does all these, these courtesies that, that maybe should be common and aren't so common right now. But you're the person they can rely on. They're the, you're the person they can call when they're in a bind and they need someone to back them up you know, right away. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that's what our Lord did. That's what the early Christians did. And you know something? There's there's this phenomenon right now about um people watching the chosen this this series, you know, that portrays Jesus really in this way as a friend to so many people. And people talk about its relatability. But I think one of the things that's remarkable about it is that it makes believable Jesus' friendship with someone like Nicodemus. But also by someone like Mary Magdalene, you know, this, this, this range of people he befriended, and, uh, and, and, and it's a credible friendship. That's the way our Lord was. He found a personal connection with all of these people. We don't have to be equals with people in every way. We might not be their intellectual equals, but we can still be their friends. We don't have to have to share everything in common. But we can have that bond, that that bond of friendship. And uh, and I think that's what the gospel shows us. That's what history shows us. That's what um with with the time of the father shows us because of that remarkable growth rate uh, in early Christianity. You're listening to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Fascinating conversation with Mike Aquilina. We're discussing his new book, Friendship and the Fathers, How the Early Church Evangelized. Uh, you mentioned the name that not too many people know, Minutius Felix, okay? Uh, so hit it, Mike. Uh, who is Minutius <laughs> Felix? Why is Mr. Felix important? <laughs> well, you know, uh, uh, he, he, um, he's important because he left us one text, right? Still, it's there in the fathers of the church. You'll find it in almost every collection of the early church fathers because we don't have that many writings of the very early fathers. He's one of the very early fathers. It's an unusual text because it never quotes scripture. It never, it never really discusses Jesus. It's, it's an argument in, in natural theology, but it's not, it's not just an argument. It's a dialogue. It's a novel, really. It's a novelistic memoir of a weekend that Marcus Minutius Felix shared with two of his friends years before, when all three of them were Africans practicing law in Rome. Okay, it's the end of the 100s, so very early in the church's history. And here are three African men who retain this bond, their colleagues, their close colleagues, close enough that they would take this vacation together uh, and, and plan to spend their time together. Um, so they go to the resort city of Ostia, which isn't far from Rome. You can still visit it today, and it's still in the same condition it was in during that time. Not, not the same condition, but the roads are still intact. The, many of the buildings are still kind of there in ruins, but you can see the town as it would have been in that time. Uh, well, anyway, they go to Ostia for a long weekend. Two of them are Christian, as I said. One of them is 
a Greco-Roman traditional man, a pagan, right? Uh, so they're walking down the street and they're just having pleasant conversation. And, uh, and, and one of the guys, Cecil, the pagan, salutes uh, this, uh, this statue of one of the gods, right? And, you know, the, their friend Octavius says, you know, I, I have to say something when I see you doing that, because you're, you're, just, you're just waving to an idol. You're blowing a kiss to an idol that's empty, right? It's just stone, uh, whereas you should be worshiping the true God, right? So, so <laughs> suddenly there's an awkward silence that falls on them. They start noticing things like the kids skipping stones on the water at the resort and that sort of thing. Suddenly... The conversation dies, but they 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 rebound, right? And and Cecil says, you know, I'm offended by that. So I want to do what lawyers do. I want to have a debate about this. And he says, Marcus, to Marcus Minucius Fields, you be the judge. Listen to our arguments. And in the end, you tell us who has the better case. And so through the rest of their vacation, they go back and forth talking about natural theology. And Cecil brings up many of the arguments that you hear new atheists bringing up today. Mm-hmm. You know, you know how is how is how is there a good God if there's so much suffering in the world and so on? They go from there, and by the end of it, Cecil says to Marcus, "You don't have to make a judgment because I'm ready to acknowledge the claims of the Christians." And he wants to go forward for baptism. Mm-hmm. This is a remarkable story. It must have been true. <laughs> Because uh, because uh, uh, Marcus is writing this story about Octavius in memory of him after his death, and and presumably many people are alive who can confirm it, right? Otherwise, mm-hmm. it wouldn't have made it uh, into a second printing, so to speak. But it's lasted two thousand years as a witness to natural theology and Christian apologetics. Well, you think That's about a great it. Story. Why would that man be open to his his commentary is because of the friendship. You see, I think ultimately you have to walk with someone as a friend before you could have those large debate, large discussions. Something that Francis said that really resonated with me, really, is you're never going to argue anyone into the church ever because – Let's be honest. The church contains the truth. I will debate it with anyone, as you will, as Joe Pasillo will. However, that doesn't mean they're going to hear. Yes. They just shut you off. Right. But if you're a person, like you mentioned, you give someone a ride every day, you go out of your way to help someone who's very different from you, like someone at work, you show kindness to them, you're good to them, your faith is being shown. And then when that discussion happens, it clicks, it clicks. And I think that's something that those two men showed. I mean, I'm sure that they had like a friendship. He knew that man to be good. Yeah. You know, the, the great thing about friendship is that it's a natural good. You know, it's not a means to an end, which is conversion. Okay, so we can enter into friendship and enjoy it as a natural good, the way we'd enjoy a meal, you know, and, uh, and, 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 and it's a good in itself. And we can try to elevate the, the, our friends' lives as best we can. Leave the rest to God. I think often when we remember our conversion experience, especially this is true for men, we remember it as an argument. Well, I thought about this, I came to this conclusion. Then I thought about that, and I came to that conclusion. And it's a series of rational steps. But we forget often the relationships that that bore that that bore that along, you know, through through um through the the rational process. It's not just a matter of um of one syllogism after another. It's a matter of the relationship that that bears it along. Other people tend to be Christ for us. Uh, we remember the doctrine often, but we forget about the people. Friendship is the great instrument that God uses. Uh, to bring con- conversions along. Absolutely. So, uh, Joe, we have about five minutes. Where are we headed next? Uh, before the, before the about, break. Let's talk a little bit about St. Basil and Gregory. Uh, they were, you know, obviously we all know those names. Um, they were friends, which I didn't know. They were friends from school. Uh, their relationship had some issues, and then it was restored. Uh, what did they accomplish together? And how were their friendship basically, how, how does that friendship impact us right now? 
Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I think their friendship is iconic. <laughs> For one reason, it's because, you know, they were they were probably intellectual equals. The two of them were fairly brilliant. Think about it. You know, they're, they're both numbered among the great fathers of the church. They're both numbered as doctors of the church, great teachers of the faith. Um, they were friends from early life. And when they went to college, you know, they, they were housemates. They kept a household. They tried to live a common life of, um, of, of intellectual study and also of piety, you know, they, they, a common life of prayer. Uh, they shared a lot of those early experiences. But in, in some ways, they couldn't be more different from one another. Basil was really a man of action. He was brilliant, but he was a man of action. He was a, a decisive man. He wasn't the kind of guy who sat around there all day, wringing his hands, thinking, on the one hand, on the other hand, on the one hand, on the other hand. Now, Gregory was really different. Gregory really liked to ponder things deeply and think about them for a long time. He was, you know, slow to act, and he tended to be fairly passive uh, with people he trusted, right? So they were two very different men. If Gre Gregory's ideal life was to, was to sit around thinking and writing poetry about the things he thought, and he wrote great poetry. He had, he had a facility for this. Um, uh, if, you know, but Basil very soon found himself ordained into the clergy and 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 a bishop. All right, you know, moving along that track because because he was that kind of decisive man and a brilliant man and an orthodox man, at a time when this was needed. I mean, the the church was still suffering the Arian crisis, uh, this this heresy that was spreading like a cancer throughout the church and metastasizing as it went. So it needed good intellectual opposition. So here are these two intellectuals, right? Two friends. You think they could be the team, right? <laughs> well, their friendship actually created problems because Basil tended to be forceful. Gregory tended to be passive and he kind of go along and he, he didn't want to be ordained to the priesthood, for example, but you know, he, Basil kind of pressured him into going along with it. Right. And afterwards he resented it. He regretted it, and he kind of held it against Basil. And then Basil wanted him to be a bishop because he saw that brilliant Orthodox bishops were necessary. And Gregory kind of went along with it, but later resented it and and, and held it against Basil. So they had these, these um, estrangements throughout their friendship. And yet, you know, they kind of patched it up, and they moved forward together. And at the end of Basil's life, it was Gregory who told his story in the most stunning way, you know, noting all of these difficulties that they had in their relationship, but noted, noting his greatness in a way that nobody else on earth could, because nobody knew Basil the way Gregory did. Awesome. Um, you're listening to The Frontline with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo and Joe Racinello, Way in the Breach, with Mike Aquilina discussing his new book, Friendship and the Fathers, How the Early Church Evangelized. So, um, we have about a minute, Mike, but we want to just introduce a question and then we'll pick it up on the other side of the break, but we can at least start it. Um, so in the book, you go into detail about Augustine yes. and he was suffering grief for a loss uh, for a lost friend that led him to some profound insights. Um, as you point out in the book, tell our listeners about that. Well, I'll just say before the break that, that no one, uh, kind of exemplifies friendship, and nobody talked about friendship more than Augustine. When he told his own story, he told it as a series of friendships and the effects that those friendships had upon him. Uh, so Augustine is an important figure as we consider the development of friendship in the early church and its effects on evangeliz evangelization. Okay, so let's leave it there for a minute. We're going to take a break. You're listening to The Frontline with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo and Joe Racinello. And we have Mike Aquilina in the house. We're discussing his new book, Friendship and the Fathers, How the Early Church Evangelized. Mike, real quick, uh, let people know now, and we'll let them know again later where they can find more of you and your books and where, most importantly, they can buy your books. Well, I am. I have my website at fathersofthechurch.com. Um, for my books, I recommend that you go to catholicbooksdirect.com, catholicbooksdirect.com, because they have a Mike Aquilina page and they usually have the best prices for my books. 
Excellent. So you're listening to us on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, serving the New York metropolitan area. Don't forget to download the Veritas Catholic Network mobile app so that you can have access to all of our station's content. Please follow Joe and I on social media wherever you find us, Facebook, YouTube, Gab, Rumble. Uh, like, like, subscribe, share, and do all that fun stuff. Stick around. We have more of this conversation on friendship, and we'll talk to you on the other side of the break. Hey, you know about our Veritas shows, right? All five? It starts every Sunday at 5 p.m. with The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Their guests include the biggest names in the Catholic world, and Joe and Joe talk to them from the perspective of the everyday Catholic. Every Wednesday at noon, you can catch Let Me Be Frank. This is your chance to hear Bishop Frank Caggiano talk about spirituality, church news, and fun stories from his Brooklyn childhood and his life. Thursday nights at 8 o'clock. That's when you can hear It's Not That Late with Liv Harrison. It's a late night show on Catholic Radio, and Liv mixes faith with humor, games, and dynamic interviews. There's a double dose of shows on Friday. First, at noon, it's Restless. It's four millennials talking about, well, life as millennials in today's crazy world. Yes, it's possible to be young and Catholic. Then, at 12.30 on Fridays, you can hear the focus on Veritas, where Peter Sonsky puts the focus on good works and the good people doing those works. Those are the five Veritas shows, and there's more on the way. Stay up to date at VeritasCatholic.com or on the mobile app. Welcome back, everyone, to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Racinello in the breach on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial with Mike Aquilina joining us here for a great conversation, a needed conversation. Uh, we live in times where, you know, everybody's at each other's throats. Um, and, and particularly also, unfortunately, Mike, as you know, in Catholic circles, which, you know, that is unfortunate. We need to, not the, not the differences and disagreements aren't important, they are, but we need to establish friendships. We have to, we have to cultivate the, the, you know, these friendships, particularly amongst ourselves and with others. Having said that, we started or we ended the, the last segment on Augustine, okay? So how, what was, you know, how, what was Augustine, Augustine, how did he recommend, let's say, cultivating friendships with others? Well, Augustine is one of these great, warm figures from history, and he had a great literary voice that, that conveyed that warmth. Uh, probably his greatest work, his best-known work, uh, it's one of the great works of, of world literature, was his autobiography, The Confessions. Some people say it, it invented uh, the, uh, the genre of autobiography. And he tells his own story. It's the story of his conversion, but he, he tells it from the time of his conception forward, you know, because he wants to show God's hand in his life. And so often he shows God, God's hand working through friendship. But Augustine understood all of his life in terms of the company he kept, the, friend, the friends he kept. And what's remarkable is that some of those friends he had from childhood stayed with Augustine until he died at an advanced age. And, and, and that, that really took some doing, all right? Because Augustine eventually left his little town where he, he grew up, right? Uh, and he, he went to Carthage and, uh, for college. And his friends went with him because they wanted to be with Augustine wherever Augustine was. And then Augustine went from Carthage across the sea to take a job in Rome. And his friends went with him. Because again, they wanted to be close to Augustine. They couldn't imagine their lives without this friendship. And when Augustine moved to Milan, they moved there with him. And eventually he moved back to Africa and they moved there with him uh, because they wanted to be close to him. And some of them were ordained to the priesthood after he was so that they could live in community with Augustine and spend this, the rest of their lives in this conversation. Augustine sees friendship as this great, great good. But it's a perilous thing. When he's a child, he tells a story uh, about, uh, about how he and his friends, you know, they were always getting into mischief together because sometimes that's what friends do. They drag each other down, right? And they get excited. They, they get caught up in the excitement of a moment. For him, this mischief in, involves stealing the, 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 the lousy tasting uh, pears from his neighbor's tree, right? But that's one of the key moments for him in understanding his own sinfulness. It's told, 
as an episode of friendship. And as you mentioned, later on, he experiences at an early age the death of a friend. We never find out the friend's name, but we do know the trauma that this was in Augustine's life and how it forced him to come up against ultimate questions because that's what love does. That's what love forces us to, right? And for the first time in his life, perhaps, he had to consider the love of one person for another and, and the possibility that this could come to an end, at least in this world. Later on, we see him developing in friendships in different ways uh, as he goes to college and he, 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 he meets a girl there and he falls for her and they, they shack up together and uh, they establish a different kind of friendship, right? Uh, she ends up being his mistress um, uh, for, for, for his, his, uh, his years ahead, you know, uh, and, and, uh, and she goes with him when he moves across the sea. Um, when we come to the culmination of his story, the, the, the months before his conversion, we find him living at this, uh, this kind of cabin uh, close to M Milan with his friends. And, uh, and he describes this in other books that he published, his dialogues, where most of their life was spent in reading and in conversation with one another about the most important things in life. They, they'd go to, to trivial things as well, because it's their everyday lives that, that kind of uh, find, find a way into the conversation. But, um, uh, but, but, but ultimately, these are the steps that lead him to conversion. They're steps in friendship, and, and he describes all those um, in his confessions as well. So we can see his life up to that point the halfway point in his life, really, uh, although he didn't know it as such because, uh, because, of course, he hadn't lived the rest of those years. But, but we can see his life as a series of friendships, all of them kind of orchestrated by God's providence in order to bring him to the point of conversion and then vocation because he becomes a priest and he becomes a bishop in fairly short order at that time. He, he, when, he, I want to comment on that yeah. because obviously the arc of Augustine is 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 significant. I mean, he yeah. was a pagan, like and lived like a pagan, and then he yeah. changed and he became a bishop. Yeah. I mean, and and a radical bishop. Yeah. Um, but yet his he had friends, as you said, which I did not know from childhood to the end. Yes. Clearly. That shows he had magnetism, and God called him. I mean, from one set like of circumstances where he was living a worldly life to another, as he did Francis, as he did Dorothy Day, as he did so many other saints who held people captive by their presence, and they didn't even know it yet. Isn't that how God works? Yes. He sees gifts in people before we even recognize them. And I am sure that Augustine influenced those friends. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, because as I said, so many of them, they just wanted to be wherever Augustine was. He was that kind of fascinating man. And he loved in return because it's not just that he was an entertainer that he was so smart you could sit and listen to him all day. But they knew that he loved them and that he had concern for them. And we see this uh, kind of played out over the remaining years of his life as well. Augustine is one of these guys who managed to establish deep friendships with people he never met in person. We know he knew them only through letters back and forth. One of them was St. Jerome, who was a very difficult personality. Yes. But Augustine, well, we were going to ask you, we're going to, you might as well keep going, Mike, because we're going to ask you about St. Jerome, talking about friendships. Augustine was friends with, with even through letters. I didn't know that, actually, which, and I did until not know this that, book. Uh, yeah. Through St. Jerome, and, and but Ambrose encouraged the clergy to cultivate strong friendships. Uh, well, how was he successful? So you could take that and then talk talk to our audience at the, at the front line. Um, on Veritas Catholic Network about St. Ambrose also, please. Hey, you guys know me, right? You should know better than to say to Mike Aquilina, just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> go, go. That's why you're here, my brother. <laughs> so I, I yeah, yeah I, I mean, Augustine established these friendships by letters. Paulinus of Nola, the great poet of the fifth century, is another guy um, Augustine knew only through letters. And one of the conversations they had back and forth was whether true friendship was possible when 
when uh, when when both friends like never really saw each other. You know, in these cases, never ever saw each other, right? Mm-hmm. But Augustine was was someone who who tried genuinely to understand the other person, and nobody could be more different from him than Jerome of Striden. Okay, Jerome is the famous irascible saint, right? He's legendary for this. He made he made a lot of enemies in his life. He also made a lot of friends in his life, but he tended to be the kind of guys who kept his his friends close but his enemies at a distance. Augustine tried to turn everybody into a friend. So he approaches Jerome because he knows that Jerome is embarked on this great project to to revise the translation of the scriptures that were used in the liturgy. And Augustine doesn't know if that's such a good idea, okay? Because the people are accustomed to the texts as they are, right? So what if we change these texts to make them unfamiliar to people that could cause a problem so he tries to bring this this concern before jerome jerome kind of senses criticism in the air and this is not what jerome likes he tended to be thin-skinned very sensitive to criticism and here he sees that one of the major intellectuals of his time a young upstart no less is coming after the venerable jerome (laughs) and he fights back, you know, he comes out swinging. Well, their correspondence has all kinds of glitches happen. Letters get lost in the mail, they get detoured, one of them is leaked to the public before it reaches Jerome, all kinds of offenses taken. And yet, what Augustine does in his part of the correspondence is show us, you know, how how to bounce back from that sort of thing, not to accept defeat, because You've managed to um, to set somebody off, a sensitive person off, but to ca- recalibrate, you know, uh, figure out how to approach this person uh, in love and establish a bond. And he manages to succeed in doing that and being, I think, a helpful presence in Jerome's life. Maybe the only person who could be on an equal footing with a man as great as Jerome, a mind as great as Jerome's. So Augustine was there in his life because he had the persistence, the perseverance to carry it forward, even after Jerome had tried to smack him down early on. Mm. Augustine knew the value of diplomacy in human relations, even on a very intimate level. But again, that's the love of God. I mean, like, it's very easy to turn away from somebody. What propels you forward is God does not turn away from anyone. Like, this is, I think, a key thing that people have lost, the the love of God. And I think that's what we've lost today. God is not in the public square as it was. You can't turn around like God said, turn the other cheek. Your neighbor does something to you, you immediately write them off. It doesn't work that way. God doesn't write anybody off. How, I mean, Jerome and Augustine, how different were they? Yet they were friends. Yeah. You know, I I think of, uh, of you know, the patron saint of of the internet is often uh, said to be um, uh, the last of the Latin fathers. Um, My goodness, why am I forgetting his name? Uh, I get nervous when I'm I'm on the big time radio here. But the last of the Latin (laughs) fathers was... um, was a Spanish guy, St. Isidore of Seville, uh, who, who wrote encyclopedias. He's often invoked as the patron saint of, of the, the internet. Um, but I think the patron saint of social media should be someone like St. Perpetua, right? There she is. She's in prison. She's sentenced to die, and yet she manages to befriend the jailers and even befriend her executioner, who, 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 who has a difficult time carrying out the order because he so admires St. Perpetua. You know, we have to be those people who just love indiscriminately and win over our jailers our, and even our executioners, the people who wish us ill. We need yeah. still to wish them well. And please correct uh, me we... if I'm wrong. Wasn't Perpetua friends with Felicity? Yes. Wasn't yes. she a slave? Yes. So there and, we have. And that... she was a noble woman. That's right. So, so again... here you have two people yes. who were friends, completely not equal, and they went to their death together. 
Yes, they did. So you see that she was already working on that universal idea of friendship, breaking down class barriers in her own society uh, before she was put into prison and made an outcast and, and set about uh, winning over these people who were who were very hostile to her. And as a matter of fact, it was it was their job to be hostile to her, her jailer, her, her persecutors, her executioners. She treated them all with love and she managed to win them over. We see this as a story that's repeated in the lives of the martyrs. And thank God we have the accounts of the martyrs set down often by pagan hands, the witnesses mm. Uh, you know the, the the testimony of pagan witnesses who were there to see it, who were who were doing the court transcripts and and recorded the conversations as they went along between the the magistrates and the criminals who were before them, the Christians who were before them, who witnessed to them, befriended them, and tried to bring them along the same path. It's a for those of you just. Oh. For those of you just joining us here, you're at the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello, and we are having a great conversation about friendship with, with Mike Aquilina, a friend of the show, and his new book, Friendship and the Fathers, How the Early Church Evangelized. Now, Mike, yeah, I got to ask you, okay, because yeah. when we were, we were putting together the, the questions for the book, who is Ravenous Morris, uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, M-A-U-R-U-S, and why did you include him in the book? Who's this character? <laughs> okay, I usually don't deal with him because he's outside the patristic era. He, he's writing really after uh, The Last of the Fathers. But I included him here because he gives us uh, one of the, the rare commentaries on the book of Sirach. And Sirach has a lot of good um, material on friendship. So I included him for that reason. Uh, we know him today as the author of hymns because he wrote, he wrote a, a number of hymns that, especially his hymns to the Holy Spirit, that we still sing today. You know, they're, they're in translation and they're, um, they're, 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 uh, they're in our hymnals even today. Which, okay. hey, you don't meet a lot of ravenous uh, people <laughs> nowadays. Uh, well, let me tell you something. You're, you're not going to get many. You're not going to get many radio programs out there where, in one hour, you mention Minutius Felix and Ravenous That's Morris. Right. In the that same is fantastic. Those but when you have Mike names. Aquilina on the show, you're going to get both. I love it. I well, love it. Should also, not be I forgotten. want to touch a little bit yes. on Ambrose, though, quickly, yes. because Ambrose and Augustine. Uh, Joe mentioned that earlier. Were tied to one another, obviously. And in fact, I think, didn't Ambrose bring Augustine into the church in Milan? Yes. It Talk was, about uh, that a little bit, because he was big on cultivating friendships, and clearly his influence on Ambrose was great. Well, Ambrose was Bishop of Milan, which at the time was the administrative capital of the empire. So, you know, even though Rome still held the title of the, the, the capital of the empire, Rome had really declined in cultural significance at this point because it was vulnerable. So they had moved the administrative headquarters to Milan. That's where the imperial court was. That's why Augustine was living there because he held the chair in rhetoric at the, at the court of the emperor. This was the big job in his field in the world. So he had made it to the big time, but he was miserable. And he was resisting conversion to Christianity. His mother had raised him to be a Christian, but he didn't accept baptism. Uh, and he, he really rejected the faith of his mother. Um, his mother had followed him to Milan, and his mother was a regular attendee at Mass. She went to Mass at least once a day, usually twice a day. She'd go to funerals, too, just so she could hear the gospel proclaimed. Well, the guy who was the uh, the bishop in the administrative capital of the empire had to be a pretty formidable guy, intelligent with a wide range of skills. And, and the guy at that time was Ambrose, who may be one of the, the greatest models of a bishop from all of history. What a providential moment, right? So Augustine used to go and kind of be a lurker around Ambrose. Usually, wherever Augustine went, he was the smartest guy in the room. When he went into a room with Ambrose, he had found an equal, right? Because Ambrose was a formidable guy, right? Uh, he used to love Ambrose's preaching, and it was Ambrose who really helped him to understand the Bible and the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and really the value of the sacraments. Uh, Ambrose was, was a great, uh, great 
Master of Rhetoric too, and he gave a series of addresses to his clergy trying to improve their human formation, <laughs> right? He wanted his clergy to be effective. They were in the imperial capital. He wanted them to, to live in a way that was... Uh, that that was that was that was up to snuff that he didn't want them to be an embarrassment because when they embarrassed the church they were embarrassing jesus christ so he tried to bring up their their culture a little bit he gave these addresses and a couple of them were on friendship and he wanted them to have friendships with each other and you know what this was in the fourth century but I think this is an important message for today, because a lot of our priests today are living in relative isolation. They, 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 you know, there was a time when in every rectory you had three priests. Well, today you usually have one, if you're lucky, right? You have a resident priest at your church. They live alone, they live in isolation from other priests, and they don't have the community, the friendships, to, to raise them up. Right. So Ambrose wanted them to cultivate good friendships. And so he gave a couple of addresses to bring that along. That is fantastic. Uh, I mean, yeah. it again just shows the providence of God and how things work and how God in his goodness and love for us bring us along through other people. And it's still that way today. But as we're talking about today, let's talk a little bit about accompaniment because we yeah. hear this and I, I think it's important because I think this is a very, I think, useful tool. And that's what we're talking about. Friendships is an accompaniment of people who sometimes aren't equals, but yes. yet they're friends and they walk together. But I do think it sometimes get gets misunderstood. Could you define the proper idea of an accompaniment um, and how Catholics today could utilize it? Hmm. Company is an interesting word. You know, it's uh, it, it, it means with bread, right? I mean, that's that's one of the suggested etymologies of the word uh, company, right? Uh, they must be and, Italian because we all we, we eat a lot of bread. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought about that. I would say, wait a minute. Yeah. P A N Y. Red. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And then cum is 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 with, right? Yeah. Yes. So, yes. So I mean, this is you, you know, you're you're sitting together and you're having a meal together, and uh, and really that's what Jesus did. We see him uh, kind of living this out on the road to Emmaus, right? We see it or at, when they, at, with the arrival at Emmaus, we see him at the Last Supper. We see him in all those post-resurrection appearances, breaking bread with his disciples. And, um, and we need to be this way in the lives of other people. This is one of the marks of friendship is let's do lunch. <laughs> let's get together, okay? Uh, let's, let's, let's do these ordinary things together and enjoy each other's company and conversation. So accompaniment is something that's very important. It's been with the church from the beginning. That's what Minucius Felix was doing, you know? That's what Augustine was doing. If you look at his rule, you know, there were rules for, for these meals together in the community. Mm -hmm. Friendship is that kind of community, and we want we want to have that. I, I, I think Pope Francis is absolutely right in, um, in emphasizing this aspect of human relations and um, and and human friendship, and uh, and I think he's right to point us toward that as a means of evangelization. We have weird ideas of evangelization today, especially you know we lay people. Um, we tend to think of it as something that that requires permission. Am I allowed to do this? Right? Uh, you know, we we tend to think of it as as something that that we can do after we've been through a video course and we get our certification, or you know, once the chancery has has given us the thumbs up you know that yes you can evangelize now you know you have all your certifications we have the fbi clearance you know no right right we have this from baptism we're supposed to be evangelizing from the time we're baptized one way mm. or another we're right. supposed to be doing it the early christians understood this and this is how they converted the world at that rate of 40 percent per decade that we find so impressive today that it's unthinkable let's well, so make it thinkable I, I, I mean, to, to, to me, if I had to give you a list of reasons why I began to practice my faith again a number of years ago and get back to the church and the sacraments, the biggest one was, or one of the biggest ones was, it's, it's historically impossible for this early Christian movement <laughs> to have become the, which was the early Catholic church, to last for 2,000 years because in historical and materialist terms, you know, in, in secular terms, this is a movement that should have been stomped out. 
That's very right. easily by the Roman emperors. Okay. And as we, you guys mentioned, you brought up, you know, perpetual infelicity. When I first read that story, I was like, the first thing that struck me was this is pure love. This is, this is pure love. That's why the church is still, still here. It wasn't like, yes, there are many good people out there who are making the arguments because we need them. We're yes. called to also defend our faith, but ultimately a person is moved in their soul when they see love. Yeah, knowing um, knowing the good arguments, you know, as you point out, I don't want I don't want to say they're not important because they are. You know, we need to internalize those. We have to be ready to give a reason, you know, for the for the hope we have, for the faith we have, and and if we don't study the arguments, we won't know those reasons. In order for us to bring them up casually in in conversation, they have to be part of our thought. They have to be part of our our life, part of our fabric, um, and uh, and 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 we won't know them. If we're not studying them, so yes, study and and apologetics are necessary components uh, in the life of any disciple of Jesus Christ. We need to be moving forward intellectually because that's 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 going to figure in our friendships. How can it not? You know, right. it's funny because the best examples of accompaniment I've seen are a lot of religious orders like the Sisters of Life, the Missionaries of Charity. Their their work sometimes propels them to very dark places and they yes. encounter people <laughs> that are far, far from God, but it's that accompaniment. They don't lower their standards. They just simply love the person in front of yes. them and they walk with them. And in time, that person opens up, not because of the rhetoric, not because of the doctrine, because of the love, and then they yes. listen. You see, that's the proper, in my view, walk. You don't yeah. lower your standards. You simply love everyone. And, and when that, you see that, yes. No, please. Go ahead, Mike. Mike. Yeah, when you see that, it's so striking because we're living in a time, this weird time of social media and social isolation, where yeah. an increasing number of people say they don't have a single friend, but they have they have you know thousands of so-called friends on social media. This is a crazy situation. We're living in the midst of a famine of friendship. The real pandemic today is loneliness, yes. and that should that should convict us. If there is such widespread loneliness in our world which is supposed to be a Christian world, a civilization created by Christianity, well, then we failed. We Christians have failed by not making friends with the people next door and the people who work with us. This is a failure, a colossal failure, and we need to remedy that. We need to make up for it. We need to overcome this famine, this this um, this epidemic, this pandemic that the world is suffering right now because uh, because it's real. Mm. And it's these examples that you give of the Sisters of Life, of the Missionaries of Charity, that show us how striking it can be when you get into somebody else's life, a lonely person's life. And that's it's what amazing. we have to do. And that's basic. It's basic. We forget yeah. the basic. It's yes. amazing when you're when you're around, let's say, uh, the 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 say the Franciscan Sisters of the Renewal, and you're up in Harlem, yes. let's say, and and the the, the the you know the rabble rousers you know that hang out on the street, they're causing all sorts of trouble. But as soon as they see that habit, man, do they do they stop what they're doing? And I say that not 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 jokingly. It's like they they see the sisters, and there's an they're they're automatically taken away from what street stuff they were doing. And they stop and or they walk away or they, or they just are silent because you're in the face really of those who are living very holy, very loving lives. Uh, Mike, we have about a minute and a half. I would ask a question to, to, to as as individual Catholics, where we feel like many people don't want to be our friends. OK, um, we may even uh, offer to break bread with them or go and have a drink with them or whatever the case might be. But because of our views, which we're never going to back down on. OK, we want to be friends. What could we do as an act of friendship in our own uh, through our own personal piety um, to to perform an act of friendship for those others who may not want to be friends with us? Um, maybe some practical advice. Somebody says, well, but these people don't want to be friends with me. What could we do to maybe help that along so that at least you're acting as a friend. Yeah, I, I think we have to make it clear that if they make that decision, it's they're, they're the ones who are making the decision, you know, because we're, we're always there, you know, hey, you know, if you do need me anytime, just don't hesitate to give me a call. The other thing that we can do is show a genuine interest in their lives, 
in their kids, in their parents, in the health of their siblings, whatever it is, show that concern. You know, it doesn't have to be overtly religious. I just want to let you know that I'm praying for you, you know, because right. that can turn people off. We should be praying for them, though. Right. We should really be praying for them and saying, hey, you know, I know your mom is sick. I know this is a big burden on you. If there's anything I can do to help help you along, watch your dog when you have to go visit mom. I'll watch your dog. Okay. One of the great needs right now is dog sitting. Yes. <laughs> there's a big industry online about that, Mike. It's easier to find a babysitter than a dog sitter. Um, so I'm glad we, I'm, unfortunately, Mike, we have to leave it there oh. um, because we're at the end of the hour. I'm glad you said that about friendship. And that's where I wanted to go with that. Yes. I think even, even in the face of a, of a little bit or a lot of a hostile environment out there, we should be as an act of friendship, praying and fasting for others. You don't even have to tell them, like you said, you don't have to tell them, just do it. It's between you and God. Um, and I wanted to thank you. I did want to ask you that question. So Mike, real quick, one more time, where can people find your books to buy them? And where could they find you in general? My books at catholicbooksdirect.com, catholicbooksdirect.com, and me at fathersofthechurch.com. Excellent. Mike Aquilina, we want to thank you, our friend, for coming back to the front line with Joe and Joe. And we want to thank you all out there for joining us on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, serving the New York metropolitan area. Please be sure to download the Veritas Catholic Network mobile app so that you can have access to all of our station's content because Veritas is spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York metropolitan area. Like, subscribe, and share wherever you see Joe and I on social media. And remember, until the next time that our conversation is your conversation. And that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon.